Hey there, Internet. Welcome to The Steaks, MTV's orange in your Christmas stocking of podcasts. We're tasty and sweet. Just peel us. That's not weird, and I resent any implications to the contrary. I'm Holly Anderson, your host and director of politics and news here at MTV, and this is our final regular episode of 2016. Now, we're not sending you into the new year with empty ears, so don't go away. More on that at the end of the show. Coming up in today's episode, we have interviews with Kimberly Drew, a.k.a. Museum Mammy, and fashion designer Subi Taha. We'll hear from our own Marcus Ellsworth on taking in the humanitarian horrors unfolding in Syria and turning empathy into energy. But first... Earlier this week, a pipeline failure caused 176,000 gallons of crude oil to spill into the surrounding area in Billings County, North Dakota. The spill traveled approximately five miles before being detected, with about 130,000 gallons of oil flowing into the Ash Cooley Creek. A complete cleanup is expected to take until spring of 2017. This pipeline failure happened only 150 miles from Cannonball, North Dakota, the site of the ongoing struggle to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline that we've been covering here on the stakes for the past few months. Pipeline opponents are, understandably, pointing at the failure in Billings County as a very real example of the dangers posed to their own land. To find out how common pipeline failures actually are and what's at risk when something goes wrong, MTV podcast director Michael Catano spoke to Rebecca Craven of the Pipeline Safety Trust, an independent organization that promotes pipeline safety. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I want to start with a really broad question. Are pipelines safe? Well, that's a, a difficult question to answer. It's, it's one that you have to answer in relative terms. It's generally agreed that pipelines are uh, safer than uh, some other uh, means of transport, but, but uh, they do carry with them risks. And while you know, massive, large failures are fairly low probability uh, incidents, they can be very high consequence. I know that a lot of details are yet to come out about this incident that just happened in North Dakota, but it sounds like that's exactly what happened here, that there was a failure in the um, in the emergency systems in the pipeline, and that consequently a, a substantial amount of crude oil has contaminated about six miles of surrounding uh, land. Um, yeah, that's that's accurate. Um, this is a pretty high volume spill uh, in, in the scheme of things, and um, what makes it also notable is is as you mentioned the the uh, electronic alarm system that they had on them on the uh, pipeline didn't identify it as a failure. They've only described it as an ident- as an electronic alarm, and I, it's not clear to me what kind of system they had on the pipe. So it sounds like you're saying that the safety systems that are put in place on these types of pipelines aren't standardized across the industry. They are not, and uh, that's actually something we've been uh, concerned about for a number of years. Well, that brings me back to the situation with the Dakota Access Pipeline. One of the things that has come out of that ongoing confrontation is that there seems to be a 
disagreement in terms of authority when it comes to the government and energy transfer partners. Uh, there was the press release um, a short while ago that said the Army Corps of Engineers was not going to grant the easement to allow the pipeline construction to continue. And the next day, the people building the pipeline said that they weren't going to really pay attention to that. They were going to proceed as per their plan. It sounds to me like that's being reflected in the kinds of regulations and safety uh, requirements that exist in this field as well, that there is not the sense of clear oversight from the government on how these things are made or how they are kept safe. Is that uh, an accurate assessment or am I way off base? The way pipelines are regulated is is a, a little complicated. There, There's a, a overarching um, set of federal rules that apply to oil transmission lines if a state chooses to, they can augment those safety rules with the permission of the federal agency. And then separate and apart from that, there's the whole question of siting and routing new pipelines, new oil pipelines. By federal statute, the federal agency, which is referred to as FEMSA, uh, FEMSA is statutorily prohibited from taking part in siting decisions about oil pipelines. Um, so that leaves it up to the states and local governments to make decisions about where those lines should go. And so those siting decisions get made at a state level if there is a state system set up for doing that. Otherwise, it's it's left to local land use governance if a local government happens to have a zoning ordinance that would control it. Or the operator really can just decide where to put the pipeline and, and do it without uh, any real decision-making authority on the part of the state. To loop back to the original question that I asked you earlier on in the interview about whether or not pipelines are safe, the kind of framework for how pipelines operate that you just laid out it sounds very, very complex and involves a lot of different regulatory agencies and a lack of standardization. So it sounds to me like the way we talk about safety when it comes to these things is perhaps a little bit limited. And do you, would you agree, I guess, that we need to have a more holistic view about what safety means when it comes to pipelines? Uh, I think a more holistic view of, of it would, would be useful and improve safety. I think many aspects of pipeline safety start with the decision on where a pipeline should be sited and, and how it should be routed through a particular area to get from A to B. And it's important that we look at those siting decisions from the perspective not only of uh, moving the, the fuel, but also from the perspective of the folks who are going to be impacted by that by that decision, whether they're landowners or tribal members who use that. That's, you know, that's, in our view, part of pipeline safety. The, the impacts, the consequences of a potential failure need to be considered upfront in the, in the decision-making process about whether and where a pipeline should go. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. Sure. That was podcast director Michael Catano speaking with Rebecca Craven of the Pipeline Safety Trust. You can learn more at pstrust.org. The art world is typically seen as very white, very cis, and very male. But Kimberly Drew, a.k.a. Museum Mammy, wanted to change that visibility online. Her Tumblr led to millions of people learning about Black contemporary artists. 
Here's MTV podcast producer James T. Green speaking with Kim Drew. Um, each Tuesday on our Community Free Day, we feature a wide variety of talks, screenings, workshops, and live art. And tonight, I am so incredibly honored to be introducing Kim Drew and Rochelle Marie Brown. I grew up in Orange, New Jersey, um, which is a suburb about 15 minutes outside of Newark, New Jersey, which is really important for understanding the whole breadth of my life because Newark has been a center for arts and culture, specifically black art cultural production um, for a very long time. And so I was raised to love art. I was raised to understand art as a part of a human life and not necessarily as something um, that was unattainable or undesirable. Um, I think very much that I could have grown up to be an artist and my parents would have been in full support of that. Um, what I did instead was go to college for <laughs> math and engineering and then was like, I'm going to study art history. And they were like, ah, uh. um, but yeah, so that's kind of where it started. Um, my aunt is an artist. I was like the only one of my cousins when I was growing up that couldn't draw. And I always was really defeated by that. Um, but creativity has always been a part of kind of my life and upbringing and that um, it's largely due to the fact that I grew up where I did and I'm very thankful for that especially being able to get home quickly like I'm I'm a very family oriented person and so being able to see my mom in 40 minutes is important and I think a part of any healthy creative process as well being being in proximity to home is really um, a part of my practice as well Um, but I realized in my studies that the math major just was devoid of um, a real human interaction. And I ended up in engineering and was putting myself through college and doing the work. Just I couldn't keep up with the other my other classmates because they just like for I mean, they just come from different types of families in mine, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and so I found myself in my first art history class. And that was when it all kind of clicked. And it was so funny because, as I said, I grew up in an environment that always encouraged art viewing. Um, but then it took me all these years to figure out, like, oh, this is what I want to study in college. Um, <laughs> yeah. I never really understood it as a viable kind of path professionally. Um, and then that kind of came to um, be a reality once I had worked at the Studio Museum in Harlem um, mm-hmm. as an intern after my sophomore year of college. How was that transition going to the Studio Museum? It was great. I was really lucky to have been selected because I didn't really have a firm um, understanding of art history at the time. I just applied because I knew it was an option. And um, in the first few weeks there, I just was totally blown away by the amount of information that I could take in. I've always been a really voracious learner and reader and um, working in a museum just totally satisfied all of those things for me. Um, I started Black Contemporary Art the March after I did my internship at the Studio Museum. I spent a few months after my internship looking for something like it. I, um, when I was done with the internship, I probably knew about like 25 to 50 artists <laughs> and wanted to figure out a space to be able to pay tribute to that knowledge because I knew if I didn't record it that I would lose it. And I've always been kind of engaged with digital technologies. And so I felt like a blog or something like it could be really useful. And my first step 
being a person who's really interested in information was to try to find something that I could continue to inform my knowledge with beyond the Studio Museum website. And I couldn't really find anything. Like there were a couple of really great examples of um, of art blogs on Tumblr, like Art Ruby or Cave to Canvas, um, but nothing that really spoke to the particular audience that I was looking for. Um, and and so I just started Black Contemporary Art. I was doing a work study job at the time in the student government office. Um, it was it was so funny because the years before I'd been working as a barista, and so like that slight change that happened is what made it possible because I just had a desk job, and quite honestly, like I would spend time doing that there, or sometimes I would work on it in class, which wasn't always good. Um, my way of grouping the artists is really just like who your people are, mm-hmm. and there have definitely been artists who are like, I don't want to be included in this category because that category of black art and, and black artists has been one that unfortunately has been used against marginalized people in hmm. some ways, or they feel oppressed by it, which is something that I'm very sensitive to as well. Um, and then also like in the same tone, I want to leave room for abstraction as well. So it's it's a really wide net. And if anybody wants to like be removed, I'm always down to do it. But in the meantime, I'm just trying to collect as many new voices as possible um, and not necessarily to pin them against each other or to like curate some sort of narrative about what it means to be an artist of African descent. But just to say, like, if you are looking for people doing really amazing work, here's a repository that I'm building. A, a lot of the work that you do is very much like rooted in like FUBU. You <laughs> know what I mean? It's black. <laughs> it's hella black. It's real black. You know, it's a lot of work that's for us and by us. And like a lot of your projects have like black folks, especially black women behind them. Um, Isn't that the best? I love black women. It's, <laughs> it's so black great. Black women gave us so much in 2016. Like yeah. I can't believe Time Magazine just didn't try to take a picture of every black woman in America. <laughs> and was like, like 86% of, of black year. women in America. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering with all this like visibility and like these successful projects that you've been doing, like, have you seen or had any examples of any like direct results of like folks coming up to you or seeing new projects emerge because they've been seeing like all these hyper visible black women doing great stuff like these projects? Yeah, I think, I mean, I try to be as inspiring as I can, right? Like I, for me, my entire, the the thing that keeps the machine going is like my peers. And so I try to be a good peer to my peers as well. Um, I can't necessarily name anything that like came out of it. Um, but I hope that my success could be an example for others as, you know, like the strategies that I've used, um, whether it be in the way that I present myself or something like this, that someone can maybe adapt it for the thing that they're trying to accomplish. That's like a really big goal of mine and why I tr- like dedicate a lot of my time to talking to younger people um, because I needed to see someone like me, you know? And also one of the things that I've been really focused on, and this was another thing that I inherited from peers was having more conversations about wellness and specifically wellness in the black community, because you think about so many black people who were just figures in the way that we understand black culture, right? And how they are no longer with us um, and and left us too soon because of issues of health, because of issues of wellness. Um, and so I am not the picture of health, but I do try to bring that dialogue into everything that I do. And I learned through doing collaborative projects like the Blacker Incubator and like Black Futures that working with other people allows you that ability to um, 
be accountable in a wellness capacity and not in a way that's like anxiety inducing, but just like someone who sees you for you. I think we've seen a lot of these different videos that were essentially created by a person who um, is not the person who ends up in their demise. Um, but I was thinking about uh, Corinne Gaines um, specifically, who actually, for those of you who don't know, she Facebook lived uh, police coming into her house, and uh, they and her son was there, and she was recording him talking about the police coming into the house, and she had a shotgun, um, and she was basically trying to barricade her house and saying, "You can't come in here, you can't kidnap me," to the police, and they killed her. That one in particular, I think, really started to refocus for me this concept of us showing these deaths as a, as a way of trying to, um, to really challenge what is happening, um, that it actually ends up maybe doing this opposite of um, creating a, a kind of spectacle. I want to bring up like something that you mentioned in like an interview on The Village Voice, and you said, uh, quote, people are recorded or they're not. So I'm curious with like you recording history digitally, like how do you see that legacy flowing with these digital tools that are owned by um, larger organizations and companies, mostly white, mostly male? For me, it was really important to record the artwork of artists of African descent and now this like the scholars of African descent as well, or the scholars who are re responding to these artists specifically. Um, and that was what I felt like I could do with, with my time here. Right. And so I say that to encourage others, if they have groups that they want to represent online, like do it, the work is necessary. And I think we all need to do a little bit better of a job at recording our own histories, just as a means of appreciating the journey you know it's like these things aren't given to us this time on the planet is just like it's so fleeting and if 2016 has taught us anything like survival is really just like not possible for everyone um, and so I believe very much in the power of recording stories when you publish things online like that can be read any number of ways so you might as well make it great um, and I want people to, to look at these kind of people, these cast of characters in, in my social media and, and just think more in more complicated ways, especially about artists of color, because I don't know that we are in, in a discipline that allows for that kind of thought and imagination. Uh, uh, thank you, Kim. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Anne. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, guys. That was podcast producer James T. Green speaking with Kim Drew. You also heard artist Rochelle Marie Brown. You can find Drew's work online at museummammy.club or at museummammy on Instagram and Twitter. Next up, MTV News correspondent Gabby Wilson spoke to Texan fashion designer Subi Taha about his eponymous line of androgynous covering clothing that he calls modest wear. Hi, Subi. What's up, Gabby? I'm good. I'm well. I'm really excited to talk to you. 
about your line. It's so beautiful and minimalist and uh, very chic. Thank you. Uh, talk to me a little about your line, Subitaha. What was the original genesis? Well, I mean, initially, what it really started off as was kind of my frustration with really praying throughout the day. So I don't know if you know, like, mm. you know, as Muslims, we have five prayers throughout the day. And basically, whenever, you know, when you're praying and you're making all these movements, it's really hard to pray whenever you have really fitted clothes. And we also have to, like, you know, wash our hands and wash our face and wash our arms before we do so. And so basically all the clothes that I was wearing made that prayer throughout the day extremely uncomfortable, especially when I'm at work. <laughs> and so I just started making it on my own and making clothes that, you know, that were easy to, to wipe my arms with or, you know, whenever I'm bowing down, it's easy for me to like cross my legs and everything. Essentially what it eventually became was kind of this, this, this promotion of, of this modest lifestyle that I kind of adapted the older that I got. What does um, it mean to you to create an androgynous line that is also informed by your Islamic faith? I think it just kind of comes from my interest in the tomboyish look for girls. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, every time, you know, I, I have friends that would ask me to help style them for like Eid or, you know, anything. They want to help me find clothes for them. I just really like the aesthetic of, like you know, the kind of the tomboy look. Yeah, and so like I, I've always been intrigued by that, and so whenever I would uh, try, like I would I would give my sister these clothes to try on that I made essentially for myself, and whenever she would wear it, I would just be like, yes, 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 it's a I look, it. <laughs> and it, it, it it just intrigued me. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean I don't think it really has any relation to kind of the the religious aspect of it, mm-hmm. and it's more of just something that I find really intriguing, and I love. You make reference on, I forget if it was your website or your Instagram, but you liken it to the slow fashion movement, which I think is really interesting because a lot of the slow fashion movement is trying to get you to curb your consumption and invest in, you know, simpler, timeless pieces in an effort Mm -hmm. to combat the kind of like unwieldy fast fashion industry. What, how do you feel about fast fashion? I mean, I think that's, I mean, obviously at one point I had no idea what slow fashion was and I kept hearing about it and I was like, what does that even mean? And so obviously I had to go Google it and I was like, wait, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's kind of this concept that me and my sister, we've always had in, in our wardrobe when it comes to buying things. It's like every time we, we look at a piece, we're like, okay, do we need this? It's like, eh, maybe, but is this, is it going to be a piece that we can wear, you know, seasons and seasons to come? And so um, that's kind of something that, that really spoke to me whenever I read it. And I was like, that's kind of this belief that, you know, that I've had for a while. And I don't think that, you know, whenever I see all these, these really like, overly trendy trends, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like oh, it's too out there. Like, say, a specific pattern or a specific color um, that, you know, like literally everybody and their mom has. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, it's like, OK, that's great right now. But. In a season, next season, people are gonna look at you and go, "Okay, well, that's kind of that was lame. You had it. That's from last season." And so, I've always been, you know, the opposite of that. And I've always kind of bought in things that most people don't have, or it's so basic and it's so simple that it's gonna basically live on. I can, I can wear it for years to come. And I, and you know, a lot of the clothes I have, I've had for years now. Um, and so, that's kind of a concept that 
I really wanted to push throughout the brand. And it's not as upfront as, like, say, modesty, but the idea of these clothes being so simple and so basic that they live on for as long as they possibly can. You're not going to look back and go, oh, well, that's from last season. Well, you're not going to know what season it's from because it's so basic. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. So what has working on this line revealed to you about, like, modesty and the different ways that genders kind of express that? Well, I think I think one thing that the idea of modesty, especially in, well, not even just, you know, the Muslim community, but everywhere, you know, modesty is typically, when you think of modesty, you think of women. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's like, you know, just like, oh, does it, you know, everybody judges how women dress and how women wear or don't wear clothes. And so mm-hmm. whenever I came up with this concept of modesty, um, initially for men, for menswear, like, you know, my first, my, my faux launch back in 2015, um, a lot of people were kept commenting and making, you know, making these remarks about what, what does that even mean? You know, modesty for men, how does that even make sense? And it's like, you know, it's, it's, and I would always, you know, answer back that it's, 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 it's the whole idea of modesty. It's not just about clothing. It's really about this, this approach to, to your life and a lifestyle, but even in, um, you know, within our faith for men, there is a level of modesty that we that we as men are supposed to uphold, you know, with the, the hijab for the women. You know, there's there is a limit for guys. Um, I think it's like between your knees and our navel, like that's the area that you're supposed to always cover up. And so, you know, when people ask me, well, how, how can you be modest as a guy? And I'm like, OK, well, whenever I look at a picture between a guy in my clothes and then a guy with no shirt on and wearing like a speedo i can i can there's a clear difference between those two and what the idea of modesty is um and not that you know either one is wrong or right but it's just you know expressing what modesty can look like for a guy mm-hmm. and so that's kind of one thing that that has you know spoken to the, the kind of different the, the roles within men and women within the community yeah, because I think a lot of people might not be able to kind of understand at first the idea that the body operates independent of earthly concerns and this idea of like self-expression, but you can yeah. want to express yourself modestly. Yeah, right. A lot of people would kind of you kind of get this this like kind of you think you're thought of as kind of like a like overly conservative, overly religious person but it's like I mean it's not really it's it's really just you know as some people like to wear crop tops some people like to wear shirts that go down to your knees it's it, it is what it is it, yeah. it's nothing you know it's not that serious it, it's just you do you like literally just do you as my myspace status had read for like three years straight just do you that's literally <laughs> just do you. I love that Subi thank you so much for talking to us Thanks so much for having me, y'all. This was fun. That was Gabby Wilson speaking with Subi Taha. You can find his clothing and social media presence at S-U-B-H-I-T-A-H-A dot com. Finally, we're going to close out today's show, like we so often do, by turning the floor over to our resident poet, Marcus Ellsworth. Marcus comes to you today bearing words of prose. He's written a piece on taking in the stories coming out of Syria and what comes next in emotion and action. 
Syria's long and complicated war has been punted around as a talking point for American politics. You heard mentions of Aleppo and talk of what to do with Syrian refugees all through the election season. But I don't think most of us can really grasp what has been happening on the other side of the world. So we hear the news, we shake our heads, maybe shed a tear. Then we turn to see what Kanye and Trump have to say to each other. That is easier. As Americans, we can comprehend celebrity colliding with politics. It goes better with a cup of coffee than imagining bullets crashing into bodies. That kind of horror compels us to look away, to change the channel, to scroll past the desperate posts of goodbye videos from Syrians and the frantic messages hoping someone out there will see them and do something. Like those from seven-year-old Bana Alabed and her mother Fatima, using Twitter to share what they fear will be their last words. On December 14th, Fatima posted, Dear world, there's intense bombing right now. Why are you silent? Why? 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 Fear is killing me and my kids. That's just one of countless messages from people in Aleppo. But they're not talking to you, right? You have to go on about your day. A day when you have places to be and things to get done. A day filled with people not walking into your neighborhood with death in their eyes. You have the privilege of not mourning the bodies that may never be given a proper burial. You don't have to bear that weight. You could carry their stories, though. Let them hang on your heart through your morning commute. Hear the voices of tens of thousands of people who are pleading for their lives. Allow the calls for humanitarian intervention to reach you and move you, and then do something about it. While you don't have the power to call a ceasefire or launch an evacuation effort, you can reach out to the people who are able to intervene in some way. Contact the White House and Congress and even your local officials to say that as a citizen of the world, you want our government to help save Syrian lives. Donate to UNICEF's fund to help refugee children or to the Red Cross efforts in Syria. We can make sure that support for humanitarian efforts does not disappear on Inauguration Day. Our power in this democracy does not end with voting. It starts there. Our country has taken in over 10,000 Syrian refugees already, with more on the way. Welcome them into your communities. Speak up against unfounded fears of terrorists masquerading as refugees and shut down Islamophobia whenever you see it. Offer support however you can, because these are people living with the unspeakable trauma of war, something most of us can scarcely comprehend. We do not know if more atrocities or a miraculous peace will come to Syria in the end. But right now, you can choose to not look away. 
As individuals, we cannot stop the war. We can support humanitarian efforts for both refugees and the people still in Syria. Being so far away, you might feel helpless. But there is always something to be done. You are only powerless when you decide to do nothing. From Tennessee, that was Marcus Ellsworth. From New York, I'm Holly Anderson. We have two holiday episodes coming out over the next couple weeks, featuring extended cuts of some of our favorite interviews, as well as brand new pieces from Marcus and another MTV poet, Hanif willis Abdurraqib. Don't touch that dial. On your phone. Which has a dial. Sure. Bye, y'all. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. <laughs>